When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. y'all here. Due to the shortage of time, we'll get right down to work. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is a track by DJ John behind me now. And welcome to our first ever holidays show. These are seasonal stories today. Now, my mother has never heard the show, but she did have some editorial advice uh, for me. She said, remember, this is when you're supposed to celebrate Jesus, it is not a time for comedy. <laughs> um, looking at the table of contents right now, I, I think I failed. Failed completely at following that, uh, that guidance. So, uh, if y- you are inclined to, don't forget to celebrate Jesus uh, sometime after listening to this episode. We start with the wonderful Tracy Rolland, who is a two-time moth winner and a regular on The Liar Show. Here she is at the Risk Live Show in New York with a story we call A Thinner Christmas. You do that so well. What's going on here? That's it, Charlie Brown. All right. Take it from the top again. Here we go. You know, it's a holiday show. And uh, nothing spices up Christmas dinner like a tonsillectomy. I got my tonsils taken out two days before Christmas, my senior year of college, and the timing was my mother's idea. I wouldn't miss any school. She's a very practical woman. And I would miss out on the week-long holiday food orgy because, as mom says, we could stand to skip a few meals. By my fifth year of college, I hadn't quite figured out the boys thing yet, and my biggest love affair was with my unlimited meal card. And I loved my mom, the former model, no pressure. (laughs) Friends would meet her and without thinking they would go, that's your mom? And then quickly recover and be like, oh yeah, that's, 
your mom. <laughs> and, um, because as the daughter of a former model, I look just like my dad. And um, <laughs> he was a tall man with a solid build and strong features that looked great on a guy, but were, were a little tougher on a teenage girl, on a, and a large teenage girl. And um, my, my awkward uh, phase lasted from like 11 to 30. And um, right at its peak, right in college, I tipped the scales at about 180, and um, my sister wasn't far behind, so while our gorgeous mom was sort of gliding down life's runway, we were sort of lurching, knocking over furniture on our way to the buffet table. And she would look at us like we were aliens, you know, and she would say to herself out loud, it's a shame none of my daughters got my nose. And we'd be like, thanks, mom. Gonna go refill this bowl of Lucky Charms now. Um, and she wasn't cruel, she just was baffled as to how, you know, her gazelle-like frame could birth this ungainly herd. And um, she, she had also done time, in addition to being a model, she was also a sexy nurse. So she had a science and biology background, but still part of her was wondering if maybe there wasn't a mix-up in the cabbage patch. And she would always say, like, why can't you be more like Heidi, her favorite? She's like, Heidi listens to me. Heidi is, has good posture. Heidi doesn't wolf down her food. Heidi was her fox terrier. Uh, one of several pets in a, in a long line uh, with, with human names. You know, there was Heidi and Daisy and Maggie and Jessie. And she'd say, oh, they're, they're just named after the grandchildren I don't have. And really, they were named after the daughter she didn't have. Um, and my sisters and I would uh, would sort of try to bust Heidi's diet. You know, we would. You know, my mom is like kissing the dog on the mouth and then sort of air kissing us. You know, and we're like, we're good if it's coming in that order. And so, you know, we'd slip food under the dog under the table for the dog. You know, busting her diet, and we would uh, do that fake fetch thing to shatter her confidence to the core <laughs> because we also inherited our dad's cruelty and hyperbole. So 48 hours on Christmas night, 48 hours after the most painful surgery in the history of medicine, I am sort of anchored on the couch, on the one little corner of the couch that's not covered by a monogram dog blanket. I, you know, just got a TV clicker in one hand, got my cup of ice chips in the other. I do not have ice cream or jello because we do not need those empty calories. So I am uh, recovering, and it's Christmas dinner, and my family's eating. They've got the piled high with the stuffing, and the oh, and I'm just like dreaming about food, sucking on ice chips, and watching TV. And then finally, dinner's over, and everybody disperses because they've got places to go and parties, and and I just get hungrier and hungrier. And so I'm not just sucking on the ice chips; I'm like crunching on them and pretending it's like a crouton. And <laughs> And then I swallowed, and then I crunched another mouthful, and I guess I didn't crunch hard enough because when I swallowed, it started feeling very warm and salty. And so I lumbered into the bathroom, and one of my sisters is in there getting ready for and also dipping into the leftovers, so she's got the drumstick in her mouth and the curling iron in her hair. And uh, I shove her out of the way, and I spit into the sink, and it's bloody. She takes out the drumstick and says, that is gross. <laughs> And she's about to tell me to take that somewhere else. And then her eyes go wide because I'm no longer just spitting blood into the sink. I'm vomiting it. And it's just torrents of blood are pouring out of my mouth. And then they're coming out of my nose. And I can't breathe. And I can't, 
you know, see straight and I'm coughing and so blood is just spattering everywhere. It's like Carrie meets the crumps. And my, my sister's like, just going, ew, 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 because we're a very sympathetic family. And so she, she runs out of the door and she goes to find my mom, who's like walking the dog, you know, 30 times around the block to work off the turkey calories. And um, so I hear her going down the street, you know, ew, 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 ew. And then when they finally get back, I'm just slumped over the sink. The, um, the blood has actually clogged the drain and is like filling the sink. And so then the paramedics come, and these are guys that are pulling like pieces of people out of car wrecks, but they stop at the bathroom door and go, whoa. And that's the last thing I remember, and then I pass out. And I wake up in the living room, I've got my shirt open, they've got EKGs all over my big boob. You gotta trust me on that one. All over my big fat boobs. And then they're, uh, and then the bleeding head just kind of stopped, you know, as quickly as it, as it started. And the neighbors are all in the front yard like, you know, what are the fat girls doing? And, um, and then my mom calls the doctor and he's like in full on holiday flower, you know, and he's all like, oh, that, it happens. <laughs> Evidently, here's one to grow on, cauterization is an inexact science. <laughs> you can't always get all the capillaries. And, um, and so he asks my mom, you know, what I've been eating and she tells him ice chips and he's like, why not just give her broken glass? What are you crazy? She needs like, Cranberry sauce, mashed potatoes, you know, Thanksgiving dinner. And um, so the neighbors disperse, my sisters go out. I get back on the couch, and yes, it took two to three paramedics to get me there. And, um, and my mom puts on her yellow gloves and sets to, goes to clean the bathroom. And so she has to empty, and this is where the nursing thing comes in very handy because she has to get a bucket and take the scoop the blood into it before she could unclog the drain because now it's just sort of this solid mass of blood. So she does that, puts a bucket down, <laughs> and goes to get the plunger. And when she comes back, Heidi's got her face in that bucket and has licked it clean. <laughs> and I don't know what has horrified my mom more, the fact that her favorite has just devoured medical waste. <laughs> or the calorie count of that much blood. All I know is I have never loved a dog more. Merry Christmas, everybody. is Risk, track called Jingle Jane by Divide and Create. And next up, we have someone who's very, very dear to us, to our team. He is the uh, producer of our show out in Los Angeles, our live show out in Los Angeles. Mr. Madison Perry is a two-time Moth Grand Slam winner uh, and a host of The Moth in L.A., 
He's at MadisonPerry.com, and we call his story The Exorcist. After I graduated college, I moved home to my hometown in Fort Collins, Colorado, and I lived there for a couple years in a house with three of my best friends. Our rent combined at this house was less than I pay for a a one-bedroom apartment here in L.A. now. We paid $250 each for a four-bedroom house with a garage and a backyard and a front yard uh, and a dishwasher, which I still don't have. All three of my roommates were soccer players, so they wore umbros all the time. Uh, so it became known as Casa de Umbro. And it was, it was like the party house amongst my, my friends. Uh, we'd have parties all the time. More than once, we came home, and despite no one that lived there being there, there was a party going on. <laughs> like our friends would break in, they knew the window they could get open, and they would just start a party, and we'd show up. And they would, oh, we're having a party. And like, all right. So, but our best parties were the holiday parties. We would have holiday parties every year, and it was a big deal because one of my roommates, Kyler, he loves Christmas more than anyone I've ever met. Uh, basically, in early November, he starts listening to Christmas carols and pretty much nothing else for the next eight weeks. He starts watching Christmas Vacation National Lampoons yeah. about once a week. He has this little advent calendar that his grandma gave him that's actually made of wood, and you pull out these little drawers, and he would himself put candies in them, and then every day in the month leading up to Christmas, open them up and be, oh, wow, nerd, you put those in there like a week ago. <laughs> like Sometimes we would just steal the candy, and he'd get really pissed in the morning, like, where's the chocolate kiss? So, and oh, and the other thing he would do is he would turn his car, he, and he still does this at age 30, he turns his car into a Christmas mobile. And he puts, he hangs a wreath on the, uh, the front, and he hangs mistletoe from the rearview mirror, and he has a power converter so that he can plug Christmas lights in, which he runs all along the interior of his car, um, which looks really cool and is also really illegal, um, <laughs> it turns out, because he gets pulled over almost every year by a cop and gets a ticket, and one year he actually says, like, are you Jewish? Is that why you're pulling me over? <laughs> And the cop laughed because he's a cop in Colorado, so of course he's not Jewish. <laughs> like, Colorado, Jews are like shooting stars. Like, you don't see them very often, and when you do, you make a wish. Um, so that was like one of the years he didn't get a ticket when he made that joke. So this guy, he loves Christmas, okay? So he would always kind of be the force that would drive our holiday parties. Um, but the last year I lived in this house, He had been depressed all fall because he'd gotten his heart broken that summer. He'd started dating this girl and they'd had this like brief but extremely intense and passionate love affair. It was the first time he'd fallen in love in his life. He was just head over heels. And then after a couple months, she left him and went back to her ex-boyfriend. And it was like very ugly and it ended with him in our front yard bawling, saying, it's either him or me, which is... Like, that should only happen on the CW. Like, it's horrible to see. So he, he was depressed all fall. He would just, uh, he's normally like a very happy, fun guy, but he would just sit in his room with the lights off, and he would listen to uh, this album called Novocaine for the Soul. Uh, yeah, great album by the Eels. 
every day, all day, it gets a little depressing uh, for his roommates. And he would wear uh, sweatpants and no shirt often, and he almost ate exclusively hot dogs uh, during this period. And one day he came into the room, and there was like a yellow stain on his skin. And I was like, what's that? And he's like, oh, that's mustard. <laughs> mustard had dripped onto his bare skin, and he'd been too depressed to clean it off before it, like... On the scale of how depressed you are, that should be above suicide attempts if you let mustard dry on your bare skin. So that's the kind of depression we're talking about. So November comes around, no Christmas music. December comes around, no Christmas mobile, no Christmas music. He's not talking about the holiday party. So me and my roommates are like, we need to throw the holiday party. Like, he loves the holidays. We're going to snap him out of this. The reason he'd kind of been stuck and been depressed so long is this girl, her name was Jackie. She was, oh, she was such a bitch because she would do the thing where she'd kind of keep him on the line, you know? He was like her, her plan B. She, so she'd come over every so and be like, oh, I miss you. I'm not that happy with my boyfriend. I miss you, you know? She had that like sense of whenever he was kind of starting to come out of it, he'd get a call from her and then he'd be in a funk again. So he was just depressed and we're like, we're gonna snap him out of it with this holiday party. So we, uh, we invited a bunch of people and we bought some beer and that was pretty much it. <laughs> um, but when you're in your early... When you're in your early 20s buying beer before the day of the party, like, you're a pretty good party planner. You're like, you put some thought into it. So we, we threw this party, and it was going great. A bunch of people came, and, and he, it like, kind of worked. Like, he put on his festive Christmas sweater. He was DJing the Christmas music. Like, he was having a good time. We were all having a good time. And then Jackie showed up at the party, this, this ex-girlfriend. She showed up, uninvited. And, and he did, he's still in love with her, so he doesn't want us to kick her out. So it's like, ugh. <laughs> So the party goes on. I go to find Kyler at a certain point because I want to show him something. I've combined uh, Sprite and beer. Um, (laughs) I called it Sprite beer. And I was like, he's going to love this. So I'm walking around with my Sprite beer looking for him. Can't find him. They're in his bedroom. He and Jackie, they're sitting on the bed. They're very clearly talking about something serious. And he's been crying. I can tell he's been crying. And before I can say anything, they shut the door and lock it. And I'm just like... Because oh. he was doing good, and she was like, I don't want you to stop loving me. So she had to pick that scab, you know, had to break his heart again. So I, I, I go down to my friends, and I tell them what I've seen, and we're like, we, we have to end this somehow. Like, we have to take control of this situation. We're like, for his Christmas present, we're going to get her away from him somehow. But, like, this is more than just regular, like, boyfriend, girlfriend stuff. Like, this was, like, supernatural, her power over him. <laughs> And so we were like, we have to free him from the clutches of this demon. And how do you do that? You have an exorcism. And um, we didn't have holy water, but we had a 72-ounce Big Gulp cup and tap water. And so our well-thought-out plan was, step one, fill up this novelty Star Wars cup to the top. Step two, throw it on her. Step three, Kyler's happy and Christmas is saved. This was the plan we came up with, which sounds stupid now, but if you'd been there and you'd also had eight Sprite beers, you would have thought it was pretty good too. So we fill up the cup, there's a group of us, and we have a, a, a small blessing ceremony. <laughs> and we go upstairs to his bedroom, and the door's still locked, so I knock. And he's like, uh, go away. And I'm like, let me in. And so we're going back and forth, and what I finally got him to open the door by saying, I need to borrow your Home Alone soundtrack to, quote, really take the holiday spirit up a notch. 
And so he was like, okay, I have to do that. And so he comes to the door. And as soon as, like, my friends are waiting behind me. As soon as the door opens, I'm like, go, go, go. And they burst in like the SWAT team, you know? And we all rush in. And my friend Ian, he just point blank right into Jackie. Douses her with 72 ounces of water. And as he throws it, he says, back to whence ye came, demon. So there's just like a moment of calm after that as everyone's like, what the fuck just happened? And she doesn't start smoking or melting or turning into a dragon. But uh, she does that thing like little kids do when they skin a knee, but they need a beat to like (gasps) prepare to scream. So she's doing that. So there's this beat of like, what's going to (laughs) happen? And then the room just erupts into chaos. She starts screaming at the top of her lungs. Kyler starts bawling again. And he's like, you got water on my computer. And I'm like, I'm sorry. And I take my shirt off and I start drying up the water. And meanwhile, Jackie's face to face with Ian, the guy that threw the water. And she's like, why did you do this? Why would you do that to me? You threw it. I'm always, and she's just yelling and yelling. And he just stands there like this the whole time. And all he'll say is, the Lord's work has been done. (laughs) This house is clear. And that's, he just keeps saying this over and over again. And the more he says it and the calmer he is, the more worked up she gets and her just face is red. And finally, she's, people are like streaming into the room now, like, what's going on? Why does he keep saying this house is clear and that he's done the Lord's work? What's happening? And she runs out and she's, she's covered and she has to borrow a jacket from someone because it's the winter. And, and Kyler goes after her crying and be like, don't leave, don't. And, uh, and then everyone's like looking at us like we're jerks. Because we threw water on Like, we're the assholes because we tried to exercise a demon, you know. <laughs> so Kyler goes, uh, he comes, she leaves. He comes back. He locks himself in his room again. He's pissed off at us. Everyone thinks we're jerks. And next morning, under the light of uh, sober, we kind of think we might be jerks also. <laughs> we're like, maybe it was a little silly to think throwing water on someone would cure heartbreak. Maybe. <laughs> Uh, except for the fact that you can't argue with results because it fucking worked. It fucking worked. He stopped, he stopped talking to her that day. He did not get in touch with her anymore. And he said it was because he realized if we were willing to do something so dumb for him, we must have been really worried about him. And he said, like, the next morning he thought about it. He's like, man, these guys, these friends really love me. Like, she doesn't love me. And, like, he really appreciated it. And so he's like, that's how I was able to get over the heartbreak. And so that felt great. Although my theory is that she actually is a demon, and that's why it worked. But uh, either way, that's uh, how I cured my friend of his heartache in the holidays. Thanks. My mouth's bleeding, Bert! My mouth's bleeding! There they are! Bert! What the Sam Hill are you yelling for, George? Yes, I'm the you don't hear In jail! (laughs) An alternate ending to uh, It's a Wonderful Life. Little known alternate ending they made there. 
um, let's just say, once Jimmy ends up in prison, the screaming has just begun. But he looks pretty good on a leash. Yeah, you just just Google it. Our next storyteller is a beloved figure on the scene here in New York. He is a host of The Moth. He is a contributor to And I Am Not Lying, both the blog and the live show. This is Brad Lawrence with the story we call A Christmas Miracle. A few years back, I went home to Missouri to visit my mom for Christmas, and I arrive, and I'm barely in the door when she says, you have to help me sort out the basement. And this is a never-ending quest for sorting out the basement, because the basement has become essentially an elephant's graveyard of unused exercise machines that my stepfather buys at garage sales, apparently completely lacking an understanding of like what level of engagement an exercise machine requires. <laughs> to be useful. Um, so I just sit down in the basement gathering dust. So I go down there with her and you know, I'm, I'm basically watching her get frustrated from a safe distance. And I turn and to my right there's this shelf. And on this shelf there are dozens of liquor bottles. All of them opened, all of them cheap, some of them like grocery store brand liquor bottles. And all of them in varying stages of having been drunk. And I see this and I go, dear God, is dad drinking all of that? And my mom turns around and her jaw drops open. I can tell she never goes in the basement. And this is the first time she is seeing my stepfather's secret stash. (laughs) And I'm waiting for a reaction because this secret stash flies in direct violation of a law my mother had laid down several Christmases before when I was six years old. And on that Christmas, Christmas Eve, we're, we're, we're basically we're going to host a family Christmas. My parents had moved from rural Missouri to the suburbs of St. Louis, and my mom had this new house that she was very proud of, and we were going to host a family Christmas. And by a family Christmas, I mean that my step-siblings are all going to come up from the hinterlands. And, you know, and many of them, they're all old. I'm the youngest of eight. They're all older than me. Some of them are old enough at this point to have families of their own. So they arrive with their feral children. Um, and one of them, Jim, also brings three hunting dogs, like blue tick hounds. And I have no idea what sort of game he thought he was going to tree in Sutter's Mill subdivision. I mean, unless he was looking for patio furniture, I'm not really sure what his plan was, but he opens wide my mother's door to her new house and lets in these dogs. And these dogs immediately go, like, flying off my mom's new carpet and begin looking for a place to crap. Like, they're, 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 all each one's the size of a pony, and they're doing that thing where they kind of lead with their hips. They're like trying to get their hips ahead of their front paws, you know, getting ready. My mom sees this and she's like, she's not having it. She's like, they have to go outside now. The dogs have to go outside. And Jim, Jim is just, oh, it's it's cold out there. Give my dogs outside. It's cold. It's cold outside. You have the dog up in the cold. And it's like 65 degrees outside. It's not, you know, but he, he won't let it go. The dogs go outside and Jim will not let this go. My dogs are outside. He's just, he's just the, the whole, the rest of the day. He's on this thing. And then my step family breaks into what is their contribution 
to the family gathering, which is several cases of bush beer and a couple of bottles of Jack Daniels. The fruitcake and figgy pudding of any trailer park Christmas. And so they break these things out and they begin to get very drunk. My step-siblings with my stepfather are getting very drunk at the kitchen table. And as they're getting drunk, every once in a while, Jim will wander back to the patio door to stare out at his dogs and go, I can't leave, Carol, my dogs are cold, Carol. My dogs are cold. I mean, you would have, you would have thought like from Jim's reaction, you would have thought that my mother was like standing out there over these dogs with a high-powered rifle like, like Ray Fiennes in Schindler's List. I mean, it was just a completely outsized reaction. And eventually my mom just had enough. Like everyone's drunk, Jim's being an idiot. Um, and she said she spent the entire day cooking for these drunk assholes and she's just done. And so she goes into the kitchen, she announces my stepfather that it's time to go to bed. And then she turns and she gives my sister a significant look. And Amy looks at me, Amy's about five years older than I am, and she says, hey Brad, if we go to bed sooner, then the sooner Santa Claus will get here. And I go, okay, because I'm six and I'm really stupid and very gullible. <laughs> and, 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 and you know, I didn't, it took me years to realize that one of Amy's responsibilities was to remove me from the most drunken part of any family gathering. <laughs> um, but she does this very easily and effectively, and we go off to her room, we go to sleep, and the next morning, I wake up and I am ripper and ready to go because I'm anticipating a G.I. Joe aircraft carrier playset under the tree. And so I come bursting out of my sister's door like, let's have it, Christmas is here. And the first thing I see down the hallway is my mother at the end of the hallway and she's very, very still. And I walk up behind her and she doesn't look at me. And I follow her gaze to where she is looking and she's looking into the kitchen. And in the kitchen, there are all of these overturned beer cans and two empty bottles of Jack Daniels and there is beer dripping from the ceiling. <laughs> and more beer that can come in one can. There are several beers dripping from the ceiling. And my mother is staring at this expressionless trying to comprehend what she is seeing when we hear a noise from the garage. So we turn, my mom goes down to the garage and she opens the door and in the garage are Jim's dogs. He had not put them back in the house. He'd put them in the garage. They had immediately gotten into all the trash bags that were in the garage, destroyed them. The garage is now littered with like rotting food and old garbage and used tampons and God knows what else and dog crap. Immediately processed. These were efficient animals. Just dog crap and garbage everywhere. And now my mother is looking for someone to answer for these things. She turns towards the basement, which is not yet full of used exercise machinery, and she goes looking for my stepfamily, and she finds them. She finds them, all of them passed out, completely blind drunk, passed out, while their children are standing there staring at them, waiting for Christmas to begin. <laughs> And they are passed out in a large circle. And in the center of that circle, there is an overturned box of oatmeal. And underneath the oatmeal is vomit. <laughs> they had vomited in the center of the floor and apparently thought the oatmeal would act as an absorbent. <laughs> this is the moment my mom begins to scream, get up and get out. Christmas is over. Which for those of us expecting a G.I. Joe 
aircraft carrier playset is chilling words. But all of a sudden, the drunks are kind of coming around, and they don't know who's screaming at them or why someone's screaming at them, and they hurt all over, and she does not care. She's like, get out, get out, get out. She begins grabbing their clothes and their coats and their keys and their children and throwing them out into the driveway. Everybody's got to go. Christmas is over. It's done. Get out. Get out. And everyone is thrown out to drive drunk two hours into the bowels of southern Missouri. And they disappear, and my stepfather has now appeared, and he's like, what's all the fuss? And my mother wheels on him and says, I'm going to tell you what the fuss is about. And begins to, and just sort of backs him into the kitchen. And I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, that this is the argument of the flying mug. Um, but regardless, at the end of the argument, a rule was laid down, and that rule was, as long as my mother drew breath, there would never be hard liquor in her house again. And so far as I knew, that rule had stood. And now, here we are in the basement, and there's about a dozen liquor bottles lined up in a row. And I'm looking at my mom, waiting to see how she's going to react, having been defied in this way. And she begins to laugh. And I'm like, what's, what's funny? <laughs> And she says, when you arrived, did you notice your, your stepdad's nose? And I had noticed my stepdad's nose. My stepdad's nose was, it was weird. It was like really red and the skin seemed tight, like new skin. And I said, yeah, I, I, yeah, I, know, I noticed that. And she said, for several weeks now, he's been getting up in the middle of the night and falling on his face halfway to wherever he's going. And several times he has taken all the skin off of his nose on the carpet. I thought he had Alzheimer's. She points to the liquor bottles and she says, this is a Christmas miracle. Thank you. called Little Drummered by Jeff Barr. That's the Harry Simeon Chorale doing that version of that song. I remember that. From when I was a kid, we used to have this record before it became this version you might especially like if, you, uh, if you're into cat tranquilizers.
Our final story comes from one of the shining stars of our podcast, the lady that our fans write in the most often to request to hear more of, the brilliant Elna Baker with a story we call For the Love of Nubbins. to New York to do acting and uh, I never I auditioned I never I've actually still I've never been cast once in anything Uh, but the first acting job I actually was able to get was as a toy demonstrator at FAO Schwartz and it's an acting job you work retail but basically you have to audition you read a monologue by Princess Pretty and then for two weeks you have to rotate from toy to toy so they have confidence that you can do this. And there's like the fun toys, like I like being on uh, jewelry because I would just make earrings for myself all day and you're supposed to give them to the kids, I never did. Uh, (laughs) But then there were like sucky toys like Band in the Box where it's like maracas, a tambourine and clapper and you do that for eight hours. (laughs) Worst band ever. Uh, Or there was a toy veterinarian kit where you have like a stuffed animal dog and you'd have to interrupt families as they go through the store and you're like spot is sick can you help me figure out what's wrong with spot which is like you know basically like you and your family want to be left alone but i'm an actor (laughs) mortifying Uh, but after two weeks i got assigned to the most high profile of the toys it was the lee middleton doll collection and i don't know if any of you have seen these dolls but basically they're weighted in the head and the bottom so that they flop like newborn babies. And it's so creepy. And I worked on the second floor in the adoption center, which was this cottage that they built, and there were all these incubators and incubators of the babies, and there was a white picket fence around it and two rocking chairs. And a typical day of work would go as follows. You know, parents and their children would look at these dolls, and then if they were serious about adoption, we would open the white picket fence and escort the prospective parent, usually like a seven-year-old girl, into one of the rocking chairs and we had to conduct an adoption interview. And again, I'm in like a nurse's uniform with a, with a whole, you know, everything. And it would begin, do you promise to love and care for this baby? Will you read to the baby? Will you change the baby's diaper? And the little girls would always answer, you know, yes. And then you would get to the last question, what would you like to name the baby? And there was always like, you know, Princess Tiffany of Fairy Flower Land. <laughs> and you would write that on a birth certificate and hand it to the parent and then say, now all you have to do is pay the adoption fee, wink, wink, which was like $120. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we were instructed not to use, you couldn't say purchase or cost or buy, you know, because that would break the illusion of the world. Uh, and the other thing that, you know, typically when it gets slow at work, you can talk with your coworkers. I worked with three other nurses. And, uh, but that would also break the illusion of the world. So if we weren't working with a customer, we had to always be holding, rocking, or bouncing the display baby doll. The display baby doll was on display for a reason. Something horrible happened in the factory on the day of its conception. It, um, its head weighed five pounds more than all the other babies' heads. So you would pick it up and its head would just flop back <laughs> violently. And its uh, hands uh, had been molded together so it looked like it had flippers. So 
that you pick it up and the head would flop back and the flippers would fly up and it looked like a tabloid monster baby which is how it earned its nickname we called it nubbins and uh, because nubbins wasn't up for adoption he didn't even have an incubator he was kept in a cupboard which was like so disturbing because he looked realistically dead you just open the cupboard and be like downward dog dead baby you'd have to scoop him up and pretend that you cared for him so uh, these dolls were really expensive so for most of September October we weren't really selling them which meant that we spent a lot of time holding rocking and bouncing baby nubbins so much time that like you kind of start to resent I would complain of lower back pain I was like so uh, us nurses uh, we invented a game And the object of the game was to try to get another girl to break character by doing something horrible to baby nubbins. (laughs) So like, you know, I would open all the the drawers and rock nubbins' head into the jagged edges while like humming a lullaby. Or the best would be like, there'd be a whole group of people there and you really have to, you scoop up the baby and you really make it look like it's real, you know, burp it. And then at just the right moment, you drop the baby. It's, it, everyone knows it's not real, but they still are like, <gasps> gasp. So, I mean, that, we would just spend all day doing horrible things to nubbins. And then, one day, it was right after Thanksgiving, everything changed. Uh, do you guys know that there's that show, Rich Girls? It was like the first stupid reality show about rich children. Uh, Tommy Hilfiger's daughter was in it. But they came to FAO Schwartz, and they adopted a baby. And the day after it aired, suddenly, these were like the hot items to get for Christmas and every mother on the Upper East Side had to have one for her child. And there was a line outside on the street of people waiting to adopt. And it, you know, we couldn't, no more horseplay, no more pranks. It was like, you know, adoptions left and right. And within one week, we sold out of all of the white babies. <laughs> and it was three weeks until Christmas. The babies were already on back order. So there was no way to get any more white babies. All we had left were incubator upon incubator of minority babies. So every day the same scenario would repeat itself. These mothers, you know, eager to get the hot toy of the year would rush up to the adoption center and you just watch, they would stop dead in their tracks and their heads go from incubator to incubator. They'd like pause briefly at the Asian baby like, oh, oh, never mind. To incubator and then they would look at us you know trying their best to be politically correct they would be like I'm sorry do you have any other shades of babies well the toy manager had like prepped us with a response he taped a memo in the women's locker room that said if the mothers express a disinterest with the babies due to their ethnicity kindly inform them that while this is all the selection we have available, there's a wider selection available online they can order online. Well, this isn't what these women wanted to hear. They would go on and on, and they'd be like, oh, don't you have something like my little Susan here? Just something that looks like Susan. (laughs) And so this happened so much that we, you know, we invented another game. And the game was this. Like, if the little girl didn't care, but it was clear the mother did, we would put the mother on the spot you know, we'd scoop up a baby and be like, oh, little Maria has really taken to you. And hand it to the, you would make an excellent mommy for Maria. And you just see these mothers in the background like, why are you doing this to me? What did I ever do to you? 
And the second game we invented involved Brad's memo. Uh, we'd, instead of saying a wider selection, we'd have to say whiter selection <laughs> without getting caught or breaking character. But like, those are the things you do just to survive a job. Because literally every day, these things I didn't expect would happen. And I remember once, in particular, this woman, uh, I, I tried to, to, to sell her a Hispanic baby. And she put her hand on mine and was like, oh, we don't want a dark child. You know what I mean. And I was like, no, I, I don't. But also, unbeknownst to her, I'm actually half Mexican. Uh, I just look white. And my brother's, there's five kids. Three are dark. Two of us are white. So I, I, you know, I don't know what she means. But also, I don't know what she means. Does she honestly think that if someone saw her carrying a Hispanic baby, they would be like, oh, Juan the gardener knocked that kid up. <laughs> only half the story because while we had sold out of all the white babies, we still had Nubbins, who was white with red hair and these green eyes. So if we weren't working with a customer, we still had to be holding, rocking, and bouncing Nubbins. So almost every day, some woman would rush up to the, the adoption center, see Nubbins in our arms, and think in their mind, they were like, that's the last white baby. So they would say, can I see that baby? All you ever had to do was turn nubbins around <laughs> and his head would like flop back and the flippers would flip up and they would just say, uh, never mind. And this, you know, this happened so often that us nurses, we decided to make a bet. And the bet was, who do you think is going to sell first, the minority babies or nubbins? And I was like, oh, the minority babies for sure. Who would buy nubbins? And, and then, so, okay, to be honest, there are, there are two ways to end this story. There's the politically correct way, or there's the, do you guys want to hear the real, what really happened? <laughs> All right, it's so depressing. What really happened is this. Uh, we did start to sell out of the minority babies. We sold, um, we, first we sold out of all the Asian babies. Uh, then we sold out of all the Hispanic babies. And then all we had left were incubator upon incubator of black baby dolls and nubbins. So inadvertently, the bet had become, who will go first, the black babies or nubbins? Well, I stood by my initial bet. I was like, we're never going to sell nubbins. But then uh, Christmas Eve, this woman rushes into the store, and she's, she's you know, one of those people dressed head to toe in designer, and she's like toting along this, this solemn child. She gets up to the adoption center. I'm holding nubbins, and she's like, can I see that baby? So I turn nubbins around, you know, slowly for full effect. <laughs> and his head like flops back, the flippers flip up. And she just says, we'll take it. I'm like, nubbins? I, like, I, I don't even know if you can sell nubbins. But I was like, okay. So I open the white picket fence, I sit this little girl down, and I begin the adoption interview. I say, uh, do you promise to love and care for this baby? And this child looks up at me and she says, no. <laughs> and I like, didn't, I mean, I had been doing hundreds of adoptions. No one, technically she had failed the adoption interview. <laughs> so, for, so I'm like, move on. I'm like, will you read to the baby? And she just looked, she's like, no. <laughs> so I, I skipped to the last question. I say, I'm like, well, what would you like to name the baby? Stupid. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not Nubbins' best friend. I'm not going to call him stupid. <laughs> so I'm like, well, let's think of other names. And the mother impatiently interrupts. She's like, just name the baby Veronica. She's like, they're not anatomically correct, but he's clearly a boy. 
so I write Veronica on the birth certificate, and I'm like, now all you have to do is pay the adoption fee. And the mother looks at me, and she's like, cute. And takes the birth certificate, and they walk away, and I, you know, I scoop up nubbins, and I put them in a pink blanket instead of a blue one. And as I'm wrapping him up, that's when it hits me. I'm like, wait, nubbins has just been adopted. Like, I love nubbins. Like, I can't let him go to this horrible family. And there's this, like, montage, you know, like, we, we one time put his head underneath the rocking chair. <laughs> or, like, we used to make out with him. <laughs> See if people would turn the corner and then be like, oh. Like, all these memories. And I was like, I can't let him go to this family. And I was like, but I, I mean, I don't have 120 spare dollars. I'm, you know, and so then I'm like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll call my dad. And I'll just be like, dad, there was this baby, and he was going to go to a bad family, and I think I could be a good family for him. And as, as I'm saying this, uh, you know, and I think honestly, it was also just like, I didn't want to lose the bet. Like, I didn't want that to be the way the world was. So as I'm going through this, they return. And then, you know, I do what I have to do. I hand them little baby nubbins, and I say, um, I'm sure baby Veronica will have a wonderful home. And then I watch him, his head bouncing on the little girl's shoulder outside the store until I can't see them anymore. Thank you. That's all for today, folks. This is Kids. Behind me now, revisiting a classic by the Ronettes. Merry Christmas, everyone. And Happy Hanukkah and Happy New Year and all the goddamn rest of it. Fill in the blank, jackass. And folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
Yeah. Jesus. You said it, man. Nobody fucks with the Jesus. Let's face it, Santa Claus has had more publicity.